Backchat. 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 Politics and current affairs. Backpack. Backchat. Backchat. Your alternative to talk back. Proudly supported by the Judith Nielsen Institute. It's Saturday, March 13th, and you're listening to Back Chat, where we break down the news you don't want to miss. Before we begin today, we'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the Gadigal land and pay our respects to elders past and present. I'm Shami Sivasubramanian. And I'm Sana Sheikh. Here's what's coming up on the show today. First up, we discuss the relevance and racism of the British monarchy, as well as the impact that the Prince Harry, Meghan Markle, Oprah interview had beyond the palace. Also, what do you think of companies making a profit off people who are unemployed? Tune in later on the show when we break down how our social security system involves making a profit off unemployed Australians. And as always, we want to hear from you. What do you think of the Harry Meghan Oprah interview? Text us on 0409-945-945 or tweet us at BackchatFBI. It is absolutely laughable. The woman's off her tree. Back chat, your alternative to talk back. It's been almost a week since Harry and Meghan's interview with Oprah, with one of the biggest issues to come out of it being the racism within the monarchy. Now, to many people, that notion isn't surprising since colonialism is what founded the Commonwealth after all. But the fallout extends beyond that. It's led to talks about the relevance of the monarchy and impact race discussions well beyond the palace wars. We're joined by Nine Honey's UK correspondent, Karishma Sarkari, based in London. She's been covering the royals for a while now. So, Karishma, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me, guys. Hi. Hi. So, Karishma, is the monarchy racist and does it even matter? Well, I guess that depends on who you ask. If it's uh, Prince William, he will say they are very much not a racist family and he's the only one that's really commented so far. Um, The Queen issued a statement via Buckingham Palace and she said she's concerned about the allegations of race and that they're being taken seriously, but we haven't really heard any much more than that from them. Um, But it's definitely raised the issue of race um, in the UK and it's got a lot of people talking about it. Um, Whether it matters, though, I guess, I mean, a lot of people will say it definitely, um, you know, that revelation was one of the most explosive to think that the head of the Commonwealth, um, you know, at such a diverse range of nations and such a diverse country in the UK would say even anything remotely close to that. But there have been, you know, gaffes and comments before uh, from members of the royal family and they seem to have, you know, ridden them out and uh, everyone sort of, you know, popped them in the back of their minds for a while. So whether it actually has any long-term consequences remains to be seen. So on that note, should the monarchy be representative of the countries it rules? Well, look, there are 54 um, countries in the Commonwealth um, and there is a lot of diversity there. And I think, you know, people would love to um, see more diverse representation. Um, But the Queen is only head of state for about 15 or 16 of those countries, Australia being one of them. Um, There's a lot of questions about, you know, whether such a ceremonial position should still exist. But I think, you know, there aren't too many countries that are 
getting rid of the Queen as head of state, um, you know, in the in the last 30 years or so, really. Barbados last September, I think, was the first country since Mauritius in 1992, so nearly 30 years, to um, drop Queen Elizabeth as head of state. So it's not something that happens very often. And like I said, she's only head of state now for 16 of the uh, 54 Commonwealth countries. Mm, that's really interesting. So on that note, does the monarchy have a real purpose and uh, can we disband it without any real repercussions? Well, look, it is really a ceremonial role, I think, um, more and more. So whether it would have any real repercussions, I mean, probably not really in Australia. Um, Australian taxpayers fund the Governor-General, which is the Queen's representative in Australia. Um, Taxpayers in the UK might have different ideas, though, because the sovereign grant is about £82.4 million, so it works out to about $148 million. Um, but that only breaks down to about a pound twenty-three per person in the UK. So it's not huge numbers, but I'm sure you know people would want to save their pennies where they can. So that would probably be um, the, the biggest outcome from it, I would say. You're listening to Back Chat here on FBI Radio ninety-four point five, where we're on the line with. Uh, Nine Honeys UK correspondent Karishma Sarkari about the political implications of the Meg and Harry interview. Uh, Karishma, we've got a couple of texts in. So Tara from Redfern says, abolish the monarchy. Uh, I'm sure there are a lot of people out there with that view. Same. Uh, And Ella from Bondi Junction says, to be honest, this is quite interesting, to be honest, I'm not surprised that the royals are racist, but I hope this interview changes something. On that note, uh, the fallout from the interview has seemed to extend beyond the palace itself. So Piers Morgan has um, left uh, Good Morning Britain, but what other impacts have been felt from the interview, you know, beyond the monarchy? Look, the interview has had some wide-reaching um, consequences, maybe is a strong word, impact. Um, Piers Morgan's exit from his role in Good Morning Britain has probably been the biggest one. Um, and it sort of has... So we've had the conversations of race off the back of um, the Oprah interview, but this has sort of brought up the question of freedom of speech. He gave his opinion and what he thought um, about Megan and about some of her comments, which you know, got something like 41,000 complaints to the media regulator. Um, so it was it was huge. And one of those com- um, complainants was the Duchess of Sussex herself, who also complained to the CEO of ITV, uh, who air Good Morning Britain over here. Um, so it has had, you know, quite an impact in that respect and brought up a whole other conversation there. Um, politically, it hasn't done too much um, you know, uh, Prime Minister Boris Johnson was asked his views about the interview after it went to air. He, you know, said he has great respect for the Queen and didn't have anything else to say. Uh, it does sort of paint the UK, uh, you know, with a, a racist brush, I guess you could say, with Harry and Meghan saying they were sort of pushed out uh, with racism, a large part of it from the UK tabloids, um, let alone within their own family, but even the UK tabloids. Um, they were accusing of, of racism. So whether it has any impacts for tourism remains to be seen. Um, obviously, you know, with a pandemic, we sort of won't see that um, impact for quite some time. But there is questions over how, you know, it places the UK in the world. 
So one of the biggest things to drop from the interview were the comments about little baby Archie's skin tone and the implications that he wasn't given a title or security because of it. So Karishma, what light can you shed on that guessing game? Yeah, look, Harry and Meghan made those comments um, individually. So there was some question as to um, who the family member was. We know it was a family member. It was implied that it was someone senior. Harry refused to say who that was uh, for their benefit as well as his. Um, But he did clarify to Oprah Winfrey off camera that it wasn't the Queen or Prince Philip, uh, which she relayed on Breakfast TV after their interview went to air. So the spotlight has then shone on Prince Charles, Camilla, Prince William and his wife, the Duchess of Cambridge. We still obviously don't know who it is, but by not knowing it implicates all of them. Um, And in the Buckingham Palace statement that was issued earlier this week, they sort of indicated they knew who this person was and what that conversation was. And they're saying, you know, recollections may vary, uh, which seems to indicate that whoever said it may have had other intentions or that the phrasing or the toning wasn't meant to be racist or wasn't, you know, uh, meant to imply anything out of it. We we don't know, obviously, the particulars, but it seems to be suggested that they took it the wrong way. But however it was intended, it did seem to offend both Prince Harry and Meghan Markle. Um, Meghan mentioned that it was a conversation that happened when she was pregnant with Archie, um, while Prince Harry mentioned it was a conversation that happened when they first got together. So we don't know if there were two instances of that same conversation or if it was just the one conversation, but sort of, you know, remembered differently, as the palace said. Yeah. So on, uh, just to wrap up, really, um, how do you see the saga ending? Look, I think it's shown a lot of support, especially in the US, for Meghan and Harry, and it's going to help them launch their Archwell Foundation, which they've, you know, somewhat conveniently or maybe just well-timed, they've started making announcements about the the charities that they're supporting this week. So it's given them that global launch pad that they they wanted and they needed for this sort of next phase of their life. But I think, you know, this Oprah interview is going to be like Diana's Panorama. We're still going to be talking about it, you know, 25, 26 years later, like we are with Panorama. I think we'll see ripple effects through the royal family and the way they operate um, and the way they behave going forward. It might cast a dim light on them for a little while, but I think there's just so much love and respect for the royals, but also the Queen in particular. I don't think it's going to have you know, long-term effects on their popularity or, you know, it's not going to disband the monarchy, I don't think. Mm-hmm. Um, and whether it has any impact on tourism in the UK, I, I'm i going to doubt that, but that remains to be seen. Thanks for joining us, Karishma. Thanks for having me. That was Karishma Sarkari, Nine Honey's UK correspondent, talking about the relevance and racism within the British monarchy and how it'll affect us here in Australia. You know, what got me shook was the comments about Archie's skin tone. I really, I wonder who said it. I've kind of got my money on Charles. What do you reckon, Charmy? Honestly, I have zero clue. But personally, I'm a bit more... um. 
I find it a bit sus that they were so nice to the Queen and to Prince Philip, and yet were quite disparaging about the rest of the firm and the family. So I feel there's more to unpack there. As they say, God save the Queen. (laughs) Well, don't go anywhere, because up next, we're going to break down a job seeker. But first, a song from Roy Boy. This is Calamari. Keep it locked on FBI 94.5 FM. Fact chat. Text 0409-945-945. So it's been a hard time for people trying to get their jobs and get their you know feet back in the game when it comes to the economy, especially during a pandemic. And you think Centrelink payments, like JobSeeker, are there to help people survive whilst trying to find a job. But the system is much more complicated than that. And uh, indeed, like you, you, like it's hard, right? Isn't it, Sana? How are you feeling about that? Okay. How you doing there? No? Okay. Give me a second, guys. We're just having some technical difficulties. Well, yeah, let me break down the system for you. So you lose your job and you need to get on JobSeeker. Seems simple, right? Wrong. Actually, to get the payment, you need to make sure that you meet your mutual obligation requirements. This can include working with a job service provider to help you find a job. But that's where things can get a bit murky, as these job service providers are paid by the government to help unemployed people get back into work. Earlier this week, I spoke to Izu Antonu about her experience with job service providers for JobSeeker. Her story is similar to many others. My name's Izzo Antonu. I'm a writer and digital marketing specialist. I lost my job the end of March last year. It had been my first time dealing with Centrelink and the job seeker payment and the whole uh, Services Australia system. I have a university degree. I'm young. I had work experience. Like my experience with my job service provider was understanding how completely unprepared they were for even someone who apparently would have been such a simple MO as mine. I also had a bit of a uh, unique experience due to the fact that my work background actually meant that I was uh, working in companies in which we would have job service providers or JSPs as our clients. So I was aggressively aware of the issues that already plagued the system. My time with them is basically categorized by them having no idea what to do with me. I was called sporadically, continually put into these bureaucratic loops. So they would tell me I hadn't filled out these forms when I had, and I had to go back and forth, which took an immense amount of time and energy just to prove. In the system, you're supposed to have a certain amount of meetings with your JSP provider. I'd have arranged meetings, but I would be continually called outside of those um, meeting hours. So I would be doing my shopping or just going about my day and then having to answer this phone call. And you have to answer it. These are some of the rules that these systems abide by. It's rather than incentivized, it's there's punishment there. They would call me and be basically having me on useless phone calls. They refused to understand that the situation wasn't working in their favor and their systems just clearly weren't built to handle any sort of deviation. I still had to apply for 20 jobs a month. I actually probably did send over 90 job applications and all my job service provider could tell me was, oh, have you tried looking on Seek? That was some of the high tier advice that these people were giving me. And the fact that they'd already made money off me coming into the system, so it works on a catchment area, and they were going to make money on me as if I got a job, even without any of their help. So it was just this demoralizing pattern of having to continue these phone calls, tell them no. 
they don't have a job yet. They're making me run around. But there were quite a few occasions where I'd be rung, once again, not scheduled, uh, and they would be offering me a job, and they were wildly inappropriate. The whole method behind offering jobs to job seekers is that you actually can't reject if it is suitable work. There is no formal definition of suitable work. So I was offered jobs in the health sector, despite having no health experience. I was also a few times offered roles that were clearly scams. There were things that were very clearly um, multi-level marketing scams. That employer disappeared when I actually started asking very simple qualifying questions. So you can see the level of vetting was very low. And the JSP actually would have made money off the fact that you had picked up that job despite it not being a suitable job. There is little respect for your time, for your energy. You know, that's a bit about how my experience was summed up. It was marred by a lack of understanding of me as a worker and me as a person. A high level of unprofessionalism from a provider who is actually supposed to be providing a public service and receiving public money for doing so. Joining us now to talk more about how job service providers treat vulnerable people on JobSeeker is Kristen O'Connell. She is a spokesperson from the Australian Unemployed Workers Union. Hi, Kristen. Thanks for joining us. Thanks very much for having me. That's okay. Uh, So, Kristen, ironically, our social security system uses a for-profit model. So how do job service providers make money from being part of this? Oh, they make money in lots of different ways, uh, mostly by preventing unemployed workers from making money. So the longer you're in the system, the more money they'll get for you ending up in work. And I say ending up in work because they don't find you a job usually. People find themselves a job and then uh, the job agency gets paid for that. And there's all kinds of collusion they do with dodgy businesses to maximise their profits. So ironically, our social security system uses... um a Sorry. profit model, is that right? But um, there are more incentives for job service uh, providers uh, ultimately to help them, like, you know, especially the vulnerable people in this situation, take up a job. Do you mind unpacking that a bit more for us? Yeah, absolutely. So they have some, um, like, the, kind of the longer you're in the system, the more perverse it is, right? So there's things like work for the doll, the youth pass program, which lots of your listeners might be familiar with. Um, there's also a subsidy for older workers called Restart. And all these things increase the amount of money that goes to either a business or the job agency to uh, give you what they call a work-like experience. So we call that forced labour. Um, we believe it breaches Australia's human rights obligations. And that means Essentially, you end up, if it's work for the doll, for example, or the very racist community development program, which is the same sort of program, but in remote communities, mostly affects black folks, um, you end up basically doing free labour. Um, you get paid extra 10 bucks a week, so you do like 42 cents an hour for that work you're doing. Um, and the host organisation that they're called uh, gets money from the government and so does the job agency. So the government has created a hotline for employers to dub in job seekers who refuse to take up jobs that are offered to them. There's been a lot of criticism of this, with Green Senator Rachel Stewart tweeting that it's an abuse of power that will hurt the most vulnerable in our community. What does the union think of that? Yeah, it's an absolute disgrace that the government is increasing policing of unemployed people at the same time that it has relaxed the way that it measures what job agencies do. Um, And so we know that, firstly, the rate of people who turn down work is incredibly low. In the first six months of last year, there were 1.1 million people in the system and 114 people were breached for turning down work. 
So it's not a problem that needs a solution. The problem doesn't exist. This is to intimidate unemployed people to taking work that is unsuitable for them. Unemployed people have the right to turn down a job. Um, the government is allowing or giving businesses and job agencies a tool to threaten people so that they take work, um, again, so that they maximise their profits. We have a huge number of disabled people in our system. So of the 1.3 million people on JobSeeker right now, about 250,000 are disabled, about 300,000 are over the age of 55. And you can just see how easy it is to kind of um, intimidate those people into taking work where they may be more at risk of injury um, than someone who is, you know, a younger, um, well person who has, you know, no um, kind of vulnerabilities. So it's, yeah, it's very dodgy in many ways. We condemn it completely um, and we're really disturbed to see the government dialing up um, this punitive model. So uh, the thing, Kristen, is that if a job service provider isn't following the law, what consequences are there for a person on JobSeeker? The consequences for a person on JobSeeker are horrendous and I would just point out that there are effectively no consequences for the job agency when they're not following the law. Um, so when uh, you turn up to your job agency, the very first thing they're supposed to do is give you a document that tells you your rights. And they do not do that. They are, we cannot find any evidence that people are being given information about their rights. So straight off, they've breached their contract with the government. There are no penalties for that. What that means is you don't know your rights. So the cost to you um, is that you end up being forced to do things or coerced into doing things that you actually don't have to and work for the doll is a great example of that you do have alternatives but if you don't know you have alternatives they're going to push you into work for the doll because that's how they make the most money mm. um, so when job providers do awful things like turn up at someone's home which has happened twice to our members in the past year which they are not allowed to do and the department has categorically said they are not allowed to do we've had senator seawert try to follow up in the senate find out what consequences there were, and there were none. So instead you have people feeling scared, uh, intimidated and having their privacy breached in their home. So really it contributes to people's distress, anxiety and causes all sorts of harm to job seekers. Mm. Thank you for joining us, Kristen. No worries, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. That was Kristen O'Connell from the Australian Unemployed Workers Union about how job service providers treat vulnerable people on JobSeeker. We reached out to Centrelink for comment on this story. They, do, they told us to instead speak to, speak to the Department of Education, Skills and Employment. We contacted the department, but they did not respond to us in time to go to air. And that's all the time we have on the show this week. A big, massive thank you to our producers, Millie Roberts, Nikki, Ilya Guyeva, um, Sana Sheikh, my wonderful co-host for today. Hey. And, <laughs> and I produced the story on uh, the Royals. Uh, we'll catch you next week, won't we, Sana? Absolutely. And now we have time for one last song. Yes, we do. Um, if at all you've missed anything, by all means, check us out on our podcast. We're on Spotify, Backchat. It's the place to be. Our last song today is by Simi. It's called by the in the album Sim Sola. I love that. You have Simi Sim Sola, like some branding love going it. on there. The song's called Original Baby. Bye. Have, have a lovely weekend.